Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. This is the place, of course, where our brilliant authors explore how they get inspired through a series of objects that they bring into the studio. We don't plant anything. They bring the it's from their own heart, from their own experiences, from their own lives. My name is Nihal Arthanaika and today I'm joined by an author who won the Booker Prize in 2007. In 2015, she became the first laureate for Irish fiction and in 2018, she received the Irish Pen Award for Outstanding Contribution to Irish Literature. Her seventh novel, Actress, is the story of a legendary theatre star, Catherine O'Dell, as seen through the eyes of her daughter, Nora, who is trying to discover the truth about her mother's life as well as her own. And its author, Anne Enright, is here. In fact, it would be remiss of us for you not to be here, quite frankly. Indeed, I am. I'm I'm, I'm present in all senses. (laughs) I'm uh, intrigued by you and this power you have over words. Do the words have the power over you or do you have power over the words? Yeah, well, that's a very good way of putting it because when you're in there in the kind of black box of making it up and you're in the flow, it's a very unselfconscious place. And one word seems to beg another or one sentence starts to talk back to you. So it, it, it does start making its own requirements of you. And there is a great pleasure. It is like, I don't know, running down the road hand in hand with someone or it, it there is a great sense of connection between you and the language. But it's a dialogue. It's not entirely, I don't have the power over the words. What um, do you take most excitement from? Is it this, I'm trying to think of it in a songwriting sense about, is it, the, you know, the bridge into the chorus or is it the introduction or is it has to be the whole song or does it have to be the whole album? You know, you can spend a lot of anxious time trying to get somewhere and then after chipping away for weeks or months perhaps, you get a run and that is fantastic when you're just writing the thing and you know that you're not going to be redrafting this very particularly because you've built a place to 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 launch a paragraph or a section from and that's really good fun but what I also find really good fun along the way is I love when the sentences start to shift I know I'm cooking when it's when it's going somewhere unexpected and that is the pleasure of creativity that it surprises you whatever you you're strumming on the guitar you're you're playing along the keyboard of the piano and something lovely comes out and you go okay that's surprising and nice and so it is that surprise that I like More than anything. Do you think about the reaction of the reader to what you're writing or does it have to be primarily about how you react to what you've written? Sometimes, well, well, you wouldn't want to get too much into your own reaction. You can take too much pleasure from something that actually nobody else is going to get. I, I know that something good is happening when I want to read it to my husband. Do you demand his attention or does the work have to heighten his attention? Uh, he also says, can I read it? And I say, no, you can't read it. So that I have to, I have to, I have to Why? read it out to you. But that's con- clearly a little wrangle about control <laughs> um, because he wants to have and possess the text. And I say, no, it's not. You can't possess it yet. I have to, I have, I have to be in charge of it still. Just in case as I'm reading it out, I might change it entirely, I suppose. It's not yet fixed. Um and that is a kind of disaster when it's all done and finished and you can't fix it anymore. So it's lovely when it's still fluid and fixable and you're in it and you can move around in it and make it better. Is there a nervousness with releasing it into the world? 
I don't know. I've written so many damn books, you know, and uh, there are a few days where you think you, you, you must be getting sick and you, you check your throat and you say, am I getting sick? And then you realise, no, I've got a book out. I call it publication flu. And sometimes it actually turns into a genuine sort of infection, or <laughs> chest infection or something. You get literally sick when it comes out. And there's no good reason for that. So you get over it then. And you go out and talk about the book or you meet the readers and you slowly, that, that, that sense of unease starts to settle down. Are you someone who struggles ever to find the right words? I mean, I'm reading your work and you say it's two to three years. So that's quite a long time to invest um, oh, in a book. Sometimes, you know, I spend a very long time on a line or two. Because you have to work on an iceberg theory that what appears on the surface on the page has a lot underneath it. I, I was writing a sentence early on about people looking at Catherine O'Dell, who's the actress in the book. And I, I paused at that moment where a photograph was being taken at the narrator's birthday. It took me a long time. She's looking at the people in the picture. She says, you could look at those people for quite a while. They're starstruck, these people looking at her mother. Their eyes watch her from, from behind a mask of delight. It took me a long time to to settle on the word mask. It really did. <laughs> it's a, a triumphant smile coming from yeah, your face. It's which is like, I got it, it. I got yeah, the no. word. And it's not about attraction, this look. It's more about disaster. Yeah. You have to get that, that moment right. And once I had that crystallised... Then I knew that was the the pivot on which Catherine O'Dell's stardom could could exist, you know, between her and the crowd. And then sometimes I just tra la la, off we go, typey type type. <laughs> sometimes I just have it, and I know it. But it's very exploratory for me. And when I hit on the right thing, it's because I'm answering a question, or I'm getting somewhere. Families, mm. mothers and daughters. Yes. What about fame? What fascinates you about fame? And in this book, Actress, it's fame from a particular era. Yeah, I was interested in the moment of glamour, which is also, I think, a moment of loss. And Nora, who writes the book, her mother is considered by the world to be as amazing and beautiful as she herself considers her mother to be at a very young age. So it's at that pitch of idealisation. That is one of the things that she she does. She sees her mother the way the world sees her mother. But as you see and you possess the image, you also realise that the mother is over there, that you're losing her, it, whatever it is to the world. Which I think is a good point to bring in your first object. My first object is yes. a photograph of Carrie Fisher looking at her mother, Debbie Reynolds, on stage. And she's sitting on a little stool and she's in a, has a bowl haircut and a matinee coat and a very nice pair of Mary Jane uh, shoes. And she's looking out at her mother who has her arms uplifted to the crowd. And her mother's in a kind of ballerina, sort of long tutu style dress. Um, and Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds were, you know, a great interest of mine. I read Carrie Fisher's biographical novel, Postcards from the Edge, many, many moons ago. I couldn't figure out what her problem was. Then then I, I read Wishful Drinking, which was the memoir on which 
the, the real, you know, a real account of what it was like to have a Hollywood star as a mother and, and it made a lot more sense. And apart from the fact that Hollywood was incestuous and families were fragmented beyond belief, she writes about her mother that, that Debbie Reynolds had a, a wardrobe and an exit and an entrance and she would walk in one end, her mother, and come out, Debbie Reynolds. And Carrie Fisher, as you probably know, had addiction issues mm. after she played Princess Leia and then she became bipolar. She was a star in her own story, not in anyone else's. And I think that was a kind of small triumph. The editor, my editor, Robin and Jonathan Cape, took the picture as the starting point for the book and, and used it on the cover. It's such an extraordinary image. I didn't intend the book to have that on its cover, so I was using it as a resource. And I finally, after many paragraphs on, on doing these paragraphs, I have Nora saying, it made me feel so lucky and so alone. So lucky to have her and alone for losing her at the same time. And that was another key, key moment. There just does seem a huge chasm between the daughter and the mother as I look at this picture. Yeah, and the mother is on and then there's the whole crowd. Yeah, it does seem a very uncrossable distance. And actually that line between the darkness of the wings and the light of the stage is one of the great uncrossable lines. It's not drawn on the stage. But if you've ever been in a live situation... That thing about the fourth wall, why did the audience just sit there? They didn't always, in the 18th century, they'd be throwing oranges and catcalling and doing all kinds of things and gossiping. And I don't know if you've ever had that impulse in the middle of a play to stand up. Why does nobody do that? Well, I'm still grappling with the idea that when you go to classical concerts, they don't clap until right at the end. So there's like a big pause yeah. after they've done a particular piece. Yeah. And I'm looking around and going... That was what? brilliant. Why aren't you <laughs> celebrating? <laughs> Yeah, my whole body wants to stand yeah, exactly, up and say, yeah. whoa, yeah. yes, go. Yeah. yeah, no, no, shh, shh, Yeah, not growing up in that culture, I was like, well, why are you people... Not clapping. Yeah, this is so rude. Yeah, but then you have to you have to subdue the pleasure. Yes. For a moment's mm. contemplation. These formalisms are very interesting, these manners, you know, around performance and around display. Um, and what you can and can't do in a very ritualised public space in which beautiful things can happen and moving things can happen. But there's this um, beautiful passage in the book where Catherine comes back off stage and those those glittery diamonds are actually pieces of plastic sewn into the dress. Yeah, they're on that kind of spooky kind of stocking material in yeah. denier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I have a particular dislike for vanity fabric or something, those dresses that have a skin coloured yeah. thing. It always freaks me out slightly. <laughs> I just don't like to see it. So, yeah, she says she comes out and it's like a second skin. It goes a little bit with the interest in masks in, in the book and in costumes. The more distinctive thing, I mean, apart from the fact that the, the spangles are just like an old pair of tights <laughs> with stuff stuck on them, is that her mother doesn't see her when she comes off stage and she yeah. rushes past her and she comes back again and she's crackling with the electricity of it all, with the, with the, with the sense of applause. But she also says to her five-year-old daughter, how was that? Was that all right? So from the very beginning... Nora has to reassure her mother about in that in that after performance dip 
that she was wonderful, darling. Staying with mothers, the next object you've got is a photo of a very famous mother indeed. Oh, yeah, this is Joan and Crawford. Text as well. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece of kitsch. Joan Crawford, it's a clipping. Joan Crawford, entertaining at home. The best parties are a wild mixture of people, she says. Take some corporation presidents, add a few lovely young actresses, a bearded painter, your visiting friends from Brussels, a politician, a hairdresser, and then toss them all together. It's especially important to have all age groups. Of course, I wouldn't want to have hippies come crawling in with unwashed feet. But all the younger people I know are bright and attractive and have something to say and they dress like human beings. Another important party secret is I always add a splash of vodka to everything. No one ever knows and everyone everyone ends up having a wonderful time. You can imagine. Wow, what an... A few lovely young actresses, a bearded painter. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a, um, a Me Too recipe for disaster. It does, does, all that vodka. Yes, and young actresses and uh, yes. uh, elderly politicians. Yeah. Um Everything about this is so contrived, isn't it? It really is. I mean, you could tell basically what a nightmare she was from her tone of voice. There was so much aspiration in the movies. Um, People, you know, when they sat in those darkened theatres, they looked up. It's a great um, description of Michael Ondaatje's In the Skin of a Lion, where the immigrants in Toronto, in Canada, sat in the movie theatres and mimicked all the lines of dialogue, that this was where they were going. This is where they learnt their English. And what they saw on screen was the dream. The Hollywood dream was also a dream of bearded painters and corporation presidents, whatever else was being sold here in the name of glamour, which, you know, you could say is a whole social structure. Well, it's smoke and mirrors as well, though, isn't it? It is smoke and mirrors as well. So, I mean, when you have the story, the story was often kind of hokum behind all of that. And you had these actresses who were, in Crawford's case, hugely and you know ambitious and targeted in their in their behaviour, um, who could cry out of one eye or the other. Joan Crawford had a, a famously abusive relationship with her daughter. And her daughter wrote about it, and this was one of the most iconoclastic things that could happen. Now, there is cause of dissent between her adopted daughter and her adopted son. She seemed to have a more successful relationship with the son. At least he didn't accuse her of the same terrible abuses that her daughter did. It was very important to her to mimic domesticity, and the children were used as props in her lovely family life. Um, But she was an enormous control freak, and she had many, many rows of dresses for her, her her daughter who wrote Mommy Dearest when she grew up and they were all on these cushioned hangers. She discovered that the child had hung some beautiful outfit up on a wire hanger and she started I think beating her with the hanger itself saying wire hangers, wire hangers and this was unco- you know, unconscionable physical abuse as well as a kind of permanent fraudulence in the family relationship. And there is a sense in actress that the child is there in part for show. And there is absence, a working mother, single mother. But there is no specific cruelty. There's no sadism. Would that have been too easy? I mean, there is sadism in the book, but not not, not between, between mother and, no. and child. 
Because Catherine O'Dell has one thing in the world and that is her daughter. One constant. Yeah. Yeah. She takes a difficult decision which is to leave Hollywood and have a baby in secret. And her daughter is in no doubt about how she is her secret treasure. And that sweetness remains. Complicated relationships um, between mothers and daughters. You're the youngest of five, is that right? I am, yes. Did that mean you largely got your own way? I mean, we've got two children. The first one came along and we were ringing up NHS direct every five minutes. Second one came along. It was like, it's fine, you'll be all right. I can imagine by the time you get to the fifth, it's kind of like, okay, there's the knife drawer, just knock yourself out. No, no, well, (laughs) you know, I I made the mistake recently. You were saying by the time she got to me, my mother had run out of energy, but she really had (laughs) not run out of energy. There was plenty there. She taught me how to read when I was... Very young and uh, amazing woman. And your grandmother went to university, which is extraordinary. actually her mother went to university, yeah. which was really something. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Um, for that and era. was a widow then subsequently, and mm. had uh, quite a hard time, I'd say. And she was a single mother, and I, I took the idealization of the single mother a little from my own mother's attitude to my grandmother, because she just adored her. She read all the time. She let the house go to rack and ruin. She, uh, you know, I mean, she may have been sarcastic. We pick up little details, but no, she was wonderful, according to my mother. Because um, people try and search out in brilliant creative types, where is the trauma? Where is the trigger? Yeah, well, right. I mean, that there it, there it is in that generation. And I'm very fortunate that it, I'm a generation away from it. And in my mother's life, she was the product of a terrible fall, which was she was born several months after her own father had died. So when my grandmother was at her husband's funeral, she didn't know she was pregnant with my mother. And this middle class woman with four children and a you know a habit of going down to the library and reading a lot of books was suddenly without a pension with four children to rear. In, in Dublin. I'm not sure they ever really recovered from the death of the father of the house. We're going to get on to your next object, which is a little brown cardboard case. Well, this is the case that everybody knows. It's like the ones that refugee children evacuated from London always clutch in the, in the movies. It's a little brown cardboard. It's made out of pressed paper. And I put it in the book as a repository of, you know, objects some of which you don't know why they're there. It comes down from an attic as part of Nora's researches into her mother's life and it contains some of of her mother's uh, stuff, papers that don't really make much sense anymore. So I was using it. It had a little Made in England sticker on it, which was pretty much the way that Catherine O'Dell, who's a legendary Irish icon, she was actually born in England. So like Catherine O'Dell, the case is made in England. And I, I was up in my own parents' attic just a, a while ago, actually, and I discovered my father's little brown case, which he must have taken with him when he went away to school. They're surprisingly small, those things. They're like what we might send our own children off to school with lunch boxes in. <laughs> like, right. You think they're bigger because the children are clutching them in the, you know, <laughs> but actually the children are small too. So it's a really poignant artefact, this case, and a good thing to throw a few sort of dead cassettes in with no tape recorder on which they can be played and, you know, those, those kind of random selection of objects. Let's talk about your last object, 
an Angela Carter book. Yeah, this is a book called The Bloody Chamber, which I got in, say, I don't know, when I was in college and I read it and it's a book of short stories by Angela Carter, a book uh, the of fairy tales where she inverts the story, you know, so the princess escapes her fate one way or the other. It's played a, a great part in my life. I remember at one stage my, my daughter was, was, was worried about pink. You know, that happens at around the age of two. Okay. Um, I told her one of the plots of The Tiger Bride by Angela Carter and so it's a Beauty and the Beast and instead of the beast turning into a handsome prince Beauty turns into an amazing beautiful beast and they run off into the forest together and it's very fierce and very animalistic very interesting ending to this story and my daughter we were on a long road trip um, and she was in a little booster seat in the back and she declared I am a panther princess and it was an end of the pink problem she could be wild. I mean, I actually think Angela Carter should be getting 10% from the Disney Corporation because she's what's behind Frozen, for example. She's behind all of these empowered princesses who aren't locked up in towers and who um, are, are kind of turning the tables on what might be called their fate. And she was also an absolutely beautiful stylist, lush, sentence by sentence, just like eating cake. And she tutored you for your MA. She did. And she didn't. She didn't do it very um, thoroughly. We had some meetings, <laughs> and uh, she either read my work or pretended to read it and said, oh, "All of this is fine. What's your problem?" So, but she was very nice to me, despite her airiness. She came to my first reading and she gave me a line for the my first book of short stories on the back of the book, and that was really very generous of her. Wonderful of her. We haven't spoken too much about the role of men in actress um, yet. And there's a great bit in the book, actually, where Nora talks about the man that her mother married. Let's have a listen to that now. My mother's husband, Philip Greenfield, was another self-invented man, dark-haired and charming. He was born in Wilsdon and graduated from London's Slade School of Art. When they moved to San Remo Drive, he converted the pool house into a sculptor's studio where he also liked to entertain during the hot afternoons. I suspect Philip taught my mother how to drink, though it's likely she would have learned that all by herself. He also took sleeping tablets and quaaludes, a habit she would in later life fail to control. But I do not blame Philip for robbing of her sleep either. She never stopped blaming Pleasance, who just rolled over and did it as though wrapping herself in my mother's peace of mind. The marriage seemed like a good idea. She and Philip had some wonderful times in LA, at least they had some wonderful weekends, and when there was a break in the filming of Mulligan, or of her next movie, The Mostly Forgotten, Wings Over the Valley, she might take a car and meet him for a swim and dinner at the house of a new friend. They drank spirits and some champagne. It was martinis at lunch, martinis before dinner, whiskey late at night, and in the morning, a vodka fixer. Philip had a recipe for a Bloody Mary with paprika and an egg that she swore by for a hangover all her days. She used to press it on people, calling it my husband's Bloody Mary, though Philip was long dead and a husband only ever in name. Magazine gossip would tell you that she found out about his male lovers slowly and experienced that as some kind of betrayal. But that's not what she said to me. 
Drunk or sober, maudlin or sweetly confiding, she never, within my hearing, implied that she cared about his sexual style. There was no bitterness. That was Actress Written and Read by my guest Anne Enright. And the audiobook is available to buy now. There's a link in the programme notes of this episode. Also, whilst we're here, do remember to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast so you don't miss our free fortnightly episodes. You can also find us on Alexa, enabled device. Alexa, I want to listen to Anne Enright talking to Nihal. And it will happen. It's that simple. OK, the men in Actress. Why does Catherine feel so powerless? in the company of these men? Yeah, it's a very good question. I was interested in male envy. It's been very little written about, but if you're in a kind of highly narcissistic world, as the world of uh, glamour might be called, envy is a kind of key problem there. So, I mean, Joan Crawford knew all about envy, but it's m- most often portrayed as being between women, as a, as a kind of failure of women. And it's very seldom seen how uh, misogynistic envy, as it were. So, yeah, there's, there's a guy called Niall Duggan. And Nora has a run-in with him, or a couple of run-ins with him. And there is somebody... Uh, in in Hollywood that uh, our mother has, you might say, a problem with. As they're growing up, Catherine O'Dell hosts these parties and she loves these men who are too intelligent for middle class respectability. So this slightly bohemian thing. She likes clever men. She likes big men. She likes powerful men. And so they circle around her and they like her because she gives them a freedom to be and to express themselves that they wouldn't find in their own kitchens at home. That slightly released sort of environment suits her very well. Slightly artistic. Lastly, to finish off, You must get asked for advice often and you've said on writing, imagine that you are dying. If you had a terminal disease, would you finish this book? Why not? (sighs) The thing that annoys this 10 weeks to live self is the thing that is wrong with the book. So change it. Stop arguing with yourself. Change it. See? Easy. And no one had to die. I wanted to convey something about the urgency and despair and anguish that people experience at the desk and particularly when you're writing into something that you have a real idea that it's wrong and you're too attached to it and you can't do anything about it and on you go, and you're going to get stuck because it's wrong. So you're going to run out of rope and you're going to say, oh, I have writer's block, but you don't. You just have to fix it and then you're fine. And um, But that... When people say that writers are ruthless, it always amuses me because what we do as ruthless writers is we sit in a room for five years. It's like the least ruthless thing. Um, But what what, what you have to be in order to get to the end of your 70,000, 80,000, 120,000 word book, you have to be ruthless with your own product. You have to say, oh, that is just not going to fit. And you have to keep... Keep redrawing the map so that you know where you're going with your writing. And that means lopping off major chapters, lots of research. Just you have to have a big commodious bin. <laughs> well, I guess that's where the r- ruthlessness comes in. That is pretty it? ruthless. Yeah. But I mean, it's only with your own words. It's not like yes. a crime. Yeah, well, you're not being ruthless to other people. Exactly. You're being ruthless with a pen and pencil to fictional characters. What was the element of actress that you had to finish? Going on what you've said, you know. 
I wanted to get to a place of stability in the central relationship in Nora's life. I wanted to get a way of describing a, a long marriage that wasn't going to be fey or, and that was going to be believable and that was going to maintain or, or, or reproduce a sense of real necessity of these people being together. It's not something I've read very often. So I wanted to get find that place in the book. That's one of the things I want. And that that's happens at the end. Yeah. What's next? Well, I woke up with a couple of short stories the other day, but they're gone. And because I've been, <laughs> I, <laughs> I have no uh, faith that they'll come You've got a rec- voice recorder on your phone, surely, yeah. I think by the time I would have clicked on the phone, it, they would have been gone. Maybe they were just the sense that I had some short stories and that was the dream. I have a short story coming out in The New Yorker next week, which I finished just a few weeks ago. Um, and I'm quite interested in, in this quite different, um, much more spare sort of space. Actress is full of colour, among other things. And I like a novel to be kind of full, but... These short stories are much more bare, bare bones. So I'm going back to bare bones, I suppose. You're not going to have to do three, three years, three to five years in a room on your own. Well, you're not in a room. It's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you come out and you have your yeah, tea. Yeah, you get bread and water. Yeah, put through yeah, a, put yeah. Through you a have your tea. Door, it's yeah. fine. And you do other things. You know, I teach uh, in UCD a little and I, you know, I get out of the house. I'm not locked. I'm not locked up. <laughs> I like noodling through. I like figuring things out. When I was getting towards the end of this book and I knew that I had it, that I possessed the book in some significant way, I was entirely happy. And I just spent six months moving things around and getting it right. And I thought, you could not buy this. I woke up to write the book and I worked all day and I... I don't know how many more times that's going to happen to me and I realise that this was the most blessed time. We look forward to more blessed times. And lovely to see you. Thank you. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Nahal. The early 80s were a turning point in British history. In Who Dares Wins, Dominic Sandbrook once again entertains and edifies, describing the rise of Thatcher and the decline of industry, as well as Tony Benn, The Battle for the Falklands, Princess Diana and Ian Botham. That summer, the Times complained that crowds in London meant lengthening queues at underground stations, exorbitant prices for souvenirs, soft drinks and ice cream and shouting mobs in Westminster Abbey. There were so many visitors that the capital's hotels were booked solid, forcing some holidaymakers to sleep in dormitories. A groaning system is already overloaded, lamented the Archdeacon of Westminster. Visitors to London, by sheer force of numbers, are destroying what they come to see. Dominic Sandbrook takes us on a first-class trip through the early 80s. The audiobook edition of Who Dares Wins is available to download now.